Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and as ever, thank you very much for joining us. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Jay Carter about his new book, Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, The Life of Tan Shu, a 20th Century Monk. This came out with Oxford University Press in 2011, but it was just released as a paperback in 2014, and it's that paperback that we had occasion to talk about today. There are many reasons why this book was a special pleasure for me to read and also to talk with Jay about. One of the things that was so pleasurable about it was the writing style. This is written in a very beautiful and a very empathetic historical voice. And what that does is make it not only a real pleasure to read as a reader, but also makes it a special kind of book to think about when you are thinking about uh, books to assign in a college course or even perhaps in an upper level high school course. So it's a very readable and it's a very assignable book as well. It's also a special pleasure because of the sensitivity that Jay brings to his role as a historian and to the craft of historiography. And this is not just in our conversation about the book, but also very much in the flesh of the book itself. So as you'll hear in the course of the conversation to come, there are many points throughout the book where Jay kind of brings us out of the story to consider the ways that the kinds of materials he's working with, the silences in those materials, and the ways that his experience of the spaces of the story um, really shape the kind of story that results and also invite us to use the story to think more creatively and to think more broadly about the work of a historian in general. So it's a real contribution to the way we think about and write about and write with the particular problems and opportunities that history writing affords us. It's also a pleasure because the story itself is so gripping. So as you'll hear um, in the course of the hour to come, Jay takes the life of this particular individual, and, and you know we'll talk about, and you'll hear us talking about the difference between a biography and a life, and he uses that to illuminate the transformations and metamorphoses in the life of China over the 20th century. And so the characters in that life include not just this monk, Tan Shu, his family, his friends, but also China in its transformations. And in addition to that, a number of really fabulously interesting cities that become characters in the story as well. So this is a book that's going to be of interest if you are um, a reader of Buddhist history, history of religion, if you're interested in 20th century China, and also if you just really are interested in lives, the lives of human beings in history. Um, it's, it's a very movingly written account that speaks to all of these subfields of history and writing. So it was a great pleasure, as I've already mentioned. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I also hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, to read it, especially because it's so um, convenient now in this new, really uh, wonderfully sized and wonderfully set paperback edition. So thanks for listening and enjoy.
I'm here today to talk with James Carter about his new book, Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, The Life of Tan Shu, a 20th Century Monk, and this just came out in a new paperback edition. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jay. Thanks for making the time, and thanks for writing a book that was really such a pleasure to read, in addition to being something that I learned a lot from. So welcome, and thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. So, Jay, could you start us off by saying, as is traditional for the channel, just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of modern China? Um, yeah, I think that I think my answer to that question may mirror a lot of people's answers. In that, I was in I was in college. Uh, I was uh, majoring in history, but I didn't have any particular. Um, connection to China, took a class, um, you know, got really captured by it. Um, and, and when I decided that I wanted to try and make a career out of being a historian, and it was really out of being a historian more than, than being a, a China scholar, um, I was, I was encouraged to, to find historians who wrote the kind of, uh, the kind of history that, that I felt, you know, spoke to me and that would be, be valuable as not just a student of China, but as a, as a student of history. Um, and that that led me into into graduate school, and that led me into China studies, and it's kind of taken over taken over from then. Mm-hmm. So the book that we're talking about focuses in on the life of one man. This is a Buddhist monk named Tan Shu eventually, although we'll, we'll get to that naming process perhaps over the course of our conversation. And it uses the life of this one man to open up a window into the lived history of 20th century China more broadly. So it's simultaneously a life of a single man and a life of modern China, or at least aspects of it. How did you come to work on this particular topic and on this figure in particular? You talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the book, but could you talk about this process a little bit for our listeners? Sure. I mean, the the way that the book came about um, is in in many ways the most interesting part of the process. Um, So this had grown out of my first book, my dissertation, you know, the dissertation book, which which I had done. most of the research for in the nineties. And I'd been set up in, in Harbin up in the Northeast. And one of the noteworthy things about Harbin is that, um, if you've, if you've been there, or even if you haven't been there, it's, it's got a lot of non, non-Chinese aspects to it. It has a, a rich Russian past and a European past and a Japanese influence. And so when I was there, um, studying, uh, language before I even began work, uh, on my, on my research, I was taken to the Buddhist temple there. While I was at the Buddhist temple there, um, I was uh, I got a hold of a copy of of the memoirs of this monk who had had founded the temple. And as I as I got a hold of those memoirs and began to look at them, I found it noteworthy that he had founded temples in some some places I was familiar with, some I was less familiar with, but all of them had this connection to a foreign presence in in China. And I kind of filed that away as as something that I might like to return to after I had you know, written about the rise of nationalism in Harbin in the 1920s, which is what I was specifically researching. Um, so then when I, I finished that project and, and time went by, um, I decided to turn, return to the Tan Shu project just to see where it would lead. And at that at that time, I had uh, visions of writing a, a pretty academic standard uh, monograph. So the idea was the intersection of Buddhism and nationalism, and how did those two things inform one another? How did they they change and shape one another in the 20th century? Um, and as I started to delve into Tan Shu's uh, contribution to that, I wound up in this detail in the in the prologue. 
I Googled him because Google hadn't existed when I started doing this in 1994 or five. And, and so I Googled him and up popped this, this, um, this treatise that he'd written. And it turned out this treatise had been translated into English and widely disseminated in, uh, in the English-speaking world. And this wasn't directly related to what I was going to write, but I figured I should have it. So I, I got in touch with the, with the, the YMBA, which is, it is actually the Young Men's Buddhist Association. And, um, and they, they sent me a copy. And in the, in the email exchange about that, First, they wanted to confirm, you know, you're probably interested in Taishu, right? Because Taishu is a very famous, much more famous figure um, in 20th century Buddhism. Um, not Tanshu. I said, no, it's actually Tanshu I'm interested in. Uh, and they said, well, in that case, you must know Master Lok To. Um, and I said, why, why no, I don't. And then, uh, to, to make a long story a little shorter, um, turns out that Lok To was Tan Shu's student. He was, um, his kind of personal secretary for a number of years. He was still alive. Um, and not only was he still alive, he was living in the Bronx. So about an hour's drive from, from, from my home. And, um, from conversations with Lokto led me into an entirely different aspect of Tanshu's life and a different way of getting at some of these same issues. So, um, I'm, what, what started off as a very traditional academic project turned into something much more personal and, and, um, a little bit, a little bit scary as well as exciting. <laughs> and we'll talk about actually more elements of what, um, both what makes this a really important academic study, but also what you identify as differentiating it from the kind of typical experience or maybe a more typical experience from working on an academic book, certainly over the course of um, the first couple chapters. And we'll meet also Lakto in more detail um, by the end of the conversation as we do meet him toward the end of the book. Sure. Now, you mention early in the book as well um, that this is technically speaking or to be true to the spirit, perhaps, is a better way of putting it, of the book, it's not really a biography in the typical sense of the word. And early on in the book, you talk about the project as you envision it, as you've crafted it in relation to these categories of biography on the one hand, and on the other hand, microhistory. Um, so especially for those of us who are really interested in the craft of the historian, this is a really, really fascinating thing to bring up, especially so early in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? How do you think about this in, in relation to these two categories? And um, can you bring us into that process? For sure. Um, I can I can try. I think that, um, I mean, I had a lot of trouble exactly describing the book uh, in its early stages because um, it is a biography in the sense that it's focused on the life of an individual. So, you know, sort of by definition, that makes it a, a biography. But I felt that... The, the point of the book wasn't really Tanshu's life. Um, I think Tanshu's life is really interesting, and hopefully, I convey some of that in in the book. But what makes what makes the book, um, I think, useful as a way of thinking about. 20th century China is the intersection of Tanshu's life with these major events that he that he either observed or took part in or, or both. Um, and so, what what became interesting to me was not so much the details of Tanshu's life, um, and so a biography in that sense, like on what date did this happen and what date did that happen, but rather on the how the, how the details of his life interacted with these with these big events that any student um, of of modern China will get introduced to pretty early in their in their career. So so big events like 
the Sino-Japanese War or the Russo-Japanese War or the Boxer Uprising or the Japanese uh, invasion or the, um, the, communist, uh, the communist victory in the Civil War. All these are, are big picture events and everybody knows, you know, in air quotes, what, what happened. Um, but of course, no, no event in history actually takes place except in the experience of individuals who are, who are there. Um, and so it looks different from different perspectives and it looks different um, in different people's experiences. And so to me, one thing that, that I wanted to get at was not was the importance of Tanshu not as an individual life, but as the portrait of Tanshu as kind of representative of all of the people who taken together make up, you know, human experience, which sounds a little bit, a little bit grand, but nonetheless, I think it's looking at the big arc of history only makes sense if you can then balance that out with the experience of, of individuals on the ground who are taking part and really comprising that big arc of history. So one of those individuals is actually you. Um, and you mentioned early in the book, and this is one of the um, really fascinating historiographical points, in addition to what we've already um, talked about, you mentioned early in the book that the book is in many ways about travel. So not only are you accounting for us and recounting for us Tanshu's travels, but to research the book, you also, to some extent, traveled Tanshu's itinerary. And you mentioned that sharing this experience, to the, at least to the extent possible, as you put it, brought you closer to understanding the man and better equipped to relate his story. So can you talk about that element of the process um, for us? What were, um, well, first of all, can, can you just kind of open that up? And also, what were some of the challenges with taking that approach that you found as a historian? Um, yeah, there were, that was both the most enjoyable and the most challenging part of, of the, of the experience. So early on in, in the book's, uh, Genesis, I, I was really trying to make it sort of equal parts present and past. Um, so it was going to document my travels alongside Tanshu's travels, and they were going to be equally important in how the book was presented. Um, I, I wasn't able to follow that through for for a variety of reasons, but nonetheless, I felt it was really important to keep a foot in the present um, as well as a foot in in the past. So I did think it was important for me to to follow Tanshu's footsteps, um, and I eventually did make it to not exactly every um, specific place that he got to, um, but I did make it to at least all of the cities and regions that that were important to him. Um, I think there is something to be said for just. Um, for place, for the importance of place, um, you know, one thing that, in your first question about how I came into the field, you know, as historian, um, you know, I was my my parents are 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 Texans and Southerners, and I was raised in New England, and uh, and so I had this very clear sense that 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 place was an important marker of of where people were and where people were from, and that they were made up of of those past experiences, not only that they had had, but actually that their their family and that their people had had passed on to them through through time. So I felt it was it was worthwhile to just follow Tanshu around, um, you know, several decades later, and and see how those places might have informed the person that he that he came to be, um, and and sometimes that took very specific. Uh, was very specific. So, for instance, it was really important the fact that he was a northerner um, and yet traveled to the south and became um, where he could pick up some of these, where he could be trained as a Buddhist monk, but then be sent back to the north because they they needed northerners who could speak the language, who could who could understand the culture. Um, and also, Tanshu wasted no time, um, uh, you know, 
expressing his his dislike of the South. He didn't like the food. He didn't like the accent. Didn't like the the smells. Um, so so I thought it was very important. At the same time traveling around to these different places often left me at loose ends for exactly what I was doing. So, you know, and I would spend weeks in these monasteries, there were texts I could look at, and I did look at some of these texts, and there were people I could interview, and I did interview with some of these people. Um, but it wasn't the, you know, the daily grind of getting up early in the morning, though I did, um, and going to bed late at night, though I sometimes did, and filling those interact intervening hours with, you know, going to the library, making photocopies, translating and reading texts. Um, so there was a lot of time spent thinking um, and contemplating Tanshu's life and, and, what it, and what it meant. And so I think, I think in that way, maybe, maybe it just gave me more space to think about, um, to think about Tanshu's life. And so if, to the extent that the place where these things actually happened make a difference to our understanding of, of what they were, then I think it was important. So I, I would concede that that point's not universally accepted by, by every historian. Thank you so much. Now, you've already mentioned the importance of places and the places of his life. One of those places was the place that he was born and returned to, um, at least to some extent, later on in his life, and this was Beitan. So he's mm-hmm. born... Um, or Tanshu at this point is not Tanshu. Um, he's born as Wang Shouchun, um, and he's born in 1875 in Beitang. This is a, f- a small fishing community. And you bring us through um, the early stages of his life, which are, at least as we understand them from the um, existing record, right, which includes largely um, his memoir in addition to other kinds of sources. Um, he His early life was kind of sprinkled with these moments that later on become significant in light of his ultimate um, career as a Buddhist monk. And so as a toddler, his first words were um, the equivalent, the Chinese equivalent of keep vegetarian, surrounded by all these signs. Um, So eventually 1892, cholera breaks out. Now he at this point is 17. He's about to be married. um, But also perhaps more significantly, and we can talk about that um, as well, his friend dies and this affects him really deeply. Okay, So he's very deeply affected by his friend's death and then he gets sick. Now I mention this because this is one of those transformative points in the story where um, we really see the transformation of Tanchu as a man, as an individual, and as an increasingly a figure whose life is marked by these points of metamorphosis um, that bring him to the spiritual path that he eventually finds himself on. At this point, he gets sick, and according to him, he actually dies and he goes to the underworld. So this is perhaps a good place um, to begin, is with his death. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this? Um, What happens in the course of this uh, moment for him, and, and what is significant about what happens that we need to understand in order to understand um, what you are arguing about his life um, in this part of the book. Sure. And you're right. I think it makes it, it makes all the sense in the world to begin with his death, um, which is not typical for how narratives work, at least on, on this on this uh, mortal plane. So when, when Tanshu... Um, I, let, me, let me start with the source a little bit. So obviously all of these... All of these stories that you just um, passed on have to be evaluated, you know, by the historian. So I'm evaluating these claims as I'm reading the source. The main source is his memoir, um, which he um, actually dictated to students um, later in, in his life. And so it's it's his memoir which is providing the foundation for a lot of this 
for a lot of this. And obviously, the only person who can understand what happened to him when he when he died, as he as he put it forward, is, is himself. And this can only come from his own from his own view. We don't have any corroborating evidence to to prove that he did or did not did not die. Um, in 1892. And he, and he's quite upfront about it in his, in the, in the memoir. And as I relate in the book, I mean, he says, I know what this sounds like. This sounds like, you know, I was sick. I had a high fever. I was hallucinating. And I imagined that I died and all these things happened. And, and I just want you to understand that while I know it seems that that's what happened, that isn't what happened. I actually died and, and, and then goes on to explain what happened. Um, to me, what's, what's important about that story um, there are a few things that are important about that story. So one is I just think it's interesting. So, I mean, it gives you an insight into belief systems and how people think about um, the afterlife, the underworld, um, you know, what goes on in these other other planes. Because he goes and he has this negotiating negotiation with, with some of the figures in the underworld, eventually persuades them to let him go back. And I just think that story is a, is a little slice of – for people, students of comparative religion or trying to understand um, – that aspect of Chinese society, I think it's a great detail to, to bring in. Um, you know, the second one, I think historiographically, you know, what do you do with that kind of a, of a, of a source? Um, you know, when he's saying, he's making a claim that as a, you know, as a secular scholar writing in the 20, well, writing in the 20th and 21st century, um, you know, what do you, what do I do with that? I mean, that, that clearly can't be true. And yet, the person who I'm taking as my guide, at least to get started in this story, says it, it is true. Um, so how do you assess that? And I guess that leads me on to the, the, the basic, the, probably the most important thing about it, which is that I try to, I try to let the reader have the evidence and then make a decision for, for him or herself. Um, so while, it's essential to the story that Tanshu died, negotiated his way back to to Earth, and then came back to life. It's essential to the to the to the scholar that that can't be true, because we know that those things don't happen, right? That's that's the the rational the, the rational enlightenment view of of the world. So we have these two contradictory forces: something that has to be true and something that cannot be true. Um, and yet, I, I chose to to write a book where both of them apparently are. are functioning. So I present them, I put them out for the reader, and uh, you can decide for yourself how successful it is. But I, but I really try to, to honor the source by, by not denying that what he said is true. But I want to also honor the reader and respect the reader by saying, I know what this, how this looks. I'm not, cl- I'm not making a truth claim for it. But I am saying that it's important to how we understand Tanju's life. Great. Thank you. Now, though he's also newly married at this point, he doesn't actually mention his wife a lot um, in the account. And I don't, does he ever mention her by name? No, not that I was, and I, I spent a lot of time looking for that. <laughs> um, so this is only one of many silences um, that you talk about negotiating through um, sort of developing a relationship with over the course of the book. And I want to mark this now um, as the first of many silences we're going to talk about, and we'll um, get to it in a little bit more detail in a little bit. Now, he's unhappy in Beitong for all kinds of reasons. He goes to live with cousins in Fengtian and work in a family tobacco business. Um, he has his first, but absolutely not last, as we'll see, experience of war in this time as well. Um, the Japanese attack China in 1894, and this becomes a recurring theme through which we follow his life and through which we understand the unfolding of modern China in this context as we see his life unfolding alongside it. 
Now, he leaves um, Beitang, and he goes to find work to support his family. And this is just kind of the beginning of a number of travels that we follow him um through over the course of the book. Throughout his life, Wang is actually living in cities that were on Chinese soil, but that are in some way administered by foreigners. And you make this point um, early in the second chapter, and pop they're populated mostly by Chinese. Why is this important for us to understand the way that Wang um, is offering a particular vision of 20th century China. So in other, in other words, what's important about the kinds of cities that he finds himself in and the relationship between um, sort of Chinese and foreign manifestations of life in those cities for you as an author? Sure. Um, well, in a lot of ways, coming out of this book, um, I really sort of reflected on, on what it is I, I am as a historian and I find that I, I write a lot about uh, the interaction of China and you know, the West, although I tend to do that at a at a personal level and not at a at a state to state level. So it was interesting to me just how how these sites of, of colonialism or semi colonialism or imperialism how we negotiate with those with those places. Um, but one other thing that was important about um, I'll just I just call him Tan Xu for for short since he, I know his name his name changed he's not yet known as Tan Xu right, right. but one th- but one thing that comes up as Tan Xu um, for for him is that right this engagement with with foreignness was engaging with the foreign so so mostly the West but not only the West to see the Japanese play a, a huge role as well um, this is not unique to Tan Xu he's certainly not the only person to say you know wow there's a lot of really interesting and important stuff to understand about these about these foreigners um but i think what i think comes out about tan shu's response is it doesn't fit neatly into any of the categories with which we're uh, more familiar as historians um he's not a modernizer um in the sense that he doesn't think they need to reject traditional chinese culture and embrace something more modern whether that's western or whether that's some hybrid of of chinese and western um so he's not a modernizer but he's not a um He's not a xenophobe. Um, you know, he's not saying that we need to get rid of, of the foreign and return to something more Chinese, like the like the boxers uh, might be the, the classic example of that. He's somebody who, who thinks that that China needs to find a way to compete, and he uses those words. And he needs that China needs to find a way to strengthen itself, um, but he does that through through an appeal to to Buddhism. Eventually, it takes him a little while to get there. Um, so I think that that the response, his response to these foreign communities or these mixed foreign and Chinese communities, um, I think complexifies our, our understanding of, of ways that individuals during that time, so from the middle of the 19th into the middle of the 20th century, the way they responded to, to the foreign presence. It wasn't just in the ways that, that uh, may have grabbed the headlines. Great. Thank you. So at this point, um, Tan Xu is still Wang. He's already experienced a name change um, early in his life, but he's still long. So at this point, he's left home. He's in Dalian during a time of increased fighting between um, Russian and Japanese forces in Manchuria. He flees to escape the fighting, and he winds up in um, Yinko. And it's not much more stable in Yinko. But while in Yinko, he's sort of continuing to search for the kind of spiritual and religious fulfillment that he's looking for. And he's got a friend, um, Liu Wenhua, whose story inspires him with the power of Buddhism. So long story short, um, he goes home, he tells his wife that he's going to the cemetery to tend to his relatives' graves, and instead he leaves and he sets out for Tianjin to become a Buddhist monk. 
a, a Buddhist monk. Long story short, again, he finds one master who's actually recently died. That doesn't work mm-hmm. out for him. He eventually settles with another master, Di Xian. He takes the tonsure again, and he this is where he gets his new name, Tanshu. Okay, so now we've you know, he's gotten his name and this is a really important part of the story now he moves from here and he's still traveling and he arrives in Ningbo in 1917 so Ningbo is one of the many cities that you talk about in the book that are actually really important as places and as spaces for the unfolding of the history of 20th century China so can you talk a little bit about Ningbo as um, Tanshu is encountering it and, and sort of th- maybe what's important for us to understand about the city at this point in the story um, sure and at some point they want to loop back to understanding uh, some of the some of the things that happened in those really eventful um, you oh, know sure. decades leading up to Ningbo oh, sure, um, yeah. whatever you if you want to sort of take us there by talking about those decades um, that's absolutely fine well I think we may loop back to it in the next uh, in, in a minute so I'll I'll, I'll um, well, let me address Ningbo. So I think for me, Ningbo, and I was really happy because I got the chance to go to Ningbo, which is a very pleasant place to uh, to be. Um, but Tanshu wouldn't agree with that assessment. Um, you know, he hated it. Um, and, you know, the, the reason he hated it was because it was so unfamiliar. And I think that's a really important point to bring out um, for for students who are coming to China uh, or coming to a study of China that, you know, that this is not just one place, um, right? I mean, this is something that, that we as scholars often take for granted that people understand the diversity um, within, even within, you know, China proper um, in quotes. But um, for, for Tan Shu, when he went to, to Ningbo, you know, he didn't like the food. He didn't understand what people were saying. He, he didn't like the weather. There were too many mosquitoes. Um, there was really nothing about it that he that he liked, and uh, but it was really important that he go there because you know in this period in in China's history that's where all the Buddhism was, um, so Buddhism was being revived in the all across China as, as Holmes Welch wrote about the, the Buddhist revival, um, but it's being revived across China, but it really in the north um, it had it had become quite dormant. And so they were very excited, uh, the monks were, to have a northerner who was willing to, to study, to take the tonsure, to become a monk, um, and they could send him back to the north to, to speak with people. So for for, uh, for Tanshu, Ningbo was important as a, as a site where he could where he could really get the, the credentials that he needed to go become, um, become a monk, but it was not some place that he really enjoyed very much personally. Great, thank you. Um, so there's a lot that's happening, and we can't, uh, we won't have time to talk about clearly, right? All of the things that are happening in all of the chapters. So please feel free to, um, you know, to raise any of the important points that I, I uh, don't think to sure. ask you at any point in the conversation. Okay, so he, as you mentioned, he's invited by this master, uh, his master Dixian, to go north with him. They go to Beijing. Uh, Dixian lectures on the Lotus Sutra. Um, long story short, eventually by the spring of 1920, Tanshu is again frustrated and he decides to leave the monastery. Again, he lies about the reasons for doing that. Um, he lies to Dixian and he leaves for Shanghai. So over the next um, couple of chapters, 
we see um, Tanshu taking on increasingly public roles to spread Buddhist teaching throughout many Chinese cities, and we see him traveling more and more. Um, he goes, and in the course of these travels, he goes to Yingko to check on his family. Um, over the course of this, um, he uh, sees his wife. He has this encounter with his wife where she finally understands um, that he's alive, first of all, and um, why he left. She eventually takes up, to some extent, um, Buddhist practices as well, and she eventually dies, um, but dies reciting a Buddhist sutra. He gets back to Beijing. Um, he's invited increasingly by temples to lecture in order to attract new students for schools, and he begins to work finding supporters to financially back the construction of Buddhist temples. And this becomes something that he works on more and more as his reputation increases over the course of the book and over the course of his life. And as more and more temples really kind of need that patronage and need that support because of other transformations in um, 20th century Chinese society that are happening on the heels of and on the back of um, not just strife and fighting, but also transformations in the political structure of Chinese society at the time. Now, at this point, he's increasingly being sought out by local leaders to, for his ability to, as you put it in the book, use Buddhism to promote and to strengthen the Chinese nation. So here we have Buddhism and nationalism being used sort of hand in hand as tools that go together. Now, this eventually brings us um, about midway through the book to a chapter that um, takes us into a moment where he's, you know, well along the path of these travels, and these travels take him eventually to Harbin. Um, I wanted to stop for a moment and focus on this because you did mention that this is um, in many ways uh, one of the uh, points of origin of the project is your work, your earlier work on Harbin. And this is a really, really important space for this study. Um, this is at, at this point where he um, gets to Harbin. It's very much a place of confluence between Russia, Japan, and China, or among rather Russia, Japan, and China. So can you take us into Tanchu's Harbin? Um, what is the, like, what, what is the space as he's experiencing it, and um, can you help us understand what's important about that, again, for you as an author at this point in the story? Sure. Um, I mean, I think, as you as you said, um, you know, Harbin is where this really began. Um, that's where I first encountered Tanshu, and that's where the you know, the general outline of, of his career um, became clear to me. Um, you know, Harbin, for, for any of, of you know, your listeners who have been to Harbin, um, they're, they're probably at best they have a notion of it as an interesting place. Um, it's unlikely they have a, a very positive impression of it because there isn't. It's not a really very very pleasant city to to be in. It's it's a fascinating city, and I think it's one best viewed through a historian's eyes. Um, if you go back to the 1920s, um, which is when Hart when uh, Tanshu arrives there. Right. It was it was depending on how you uh, on how you defined it. You know, it was it was China's most cosmopolitan city. Um, certainly people at Shanghai would would rail against that notion. But but it was it was right up there. Right. It had it had symphony orchestras. It had newspapers in uh, you know, a dozen languages, close to a dozen languages anyway. Um, it had it had consulates and populations from from most of the major countries in, in Europe it Had a very diverse um a very diverse student uh, student body. Very, very diverse. <laughs> been grading too many exams lately. Um, a very diverse um, uh, population, and and yet, um, 
it was very isolated, um, very much, very far away from from the rest of from the rest of China, um, and so it had grown up in this place. Uh, where it was, it was not officially a Russian colony, but it was kind of a, a Russian colony. Uh, and so when, when uh, Tan Chu arrived there, he came at a, at a moment when it was transforming itself or being transformed um, from a Russian colony, um, semi-colony, into a Chinese city, which is the, what I wrote about in my, in my first book. Um, but in that part of that process was a, a physical transformation of, of the city. And this was a pattern that began in Yinko at a, at a, to a lesser extent, really became fully fledged in Harbin and then, and then got carried out in, in uh, Qingdao later on. Um, but if you've, uh, the, the, the Buddhist temple in Harbin is located at the end of a, of a broad street. In fact, it's called broad straight street, Dodger, <laughs> um, which goes right down, um, connects what used to be the, the one of the, the main um, Orthodox cathedrals, goes down past the Protestant and Catholic Christian churches um, and down to the Russian cemetery, um, which would have um, – this was kind of the access, kind of a spiritual access for, for Europeans, especially Russians, but for Europeans in, in Harbin. The Buddhist temple and the Confucian temple were both built there in the 1920s. Um, flanking that route, um, not by, by not by coincidence. Right? They're they're built there with the explicit purpose of of demonstrating to to a non Chinese population, you no, know, you're not in you're, you're not in St. Petersburg anymore, right? So this is the idea that he was trying to promote. Tanshu was brought in to, to do that, so he built the temple in that particular place, that particular time. So it's a diverse city. Um, it's a city that's majority population is Chinese, but it's um, its administration has been almost wholly, um, well, at least for the center, central parts of the city, almost wholly Russian or European. And now that changes, I should have made clear, after the Russian Revolution, when the um, when the, the Chinese government doesn't recognize the Soviet Union. So therefore, all of the all of the, the Russians who are there are rendered stateless. You know, so the Russian Empire is dissolved, but the Soviet Union has not been re- recognized. So China uses that opportunity in the 1920s to reclaim its uh, authority over over Harbin, and Tanshu becomes a central a central player in that. Thank you. Um, so over the course of this chapter, among other things that are happening, he founds a temple. This is the Paradise Temple. Um, you take us through the travails of him actually trying to find a patron to support the building and then running of the temple. And this is an adventure of its own, and which involves fire um, and this guy claiming to be the Buddha's uncle and all the, all these kinds of things that are happening around right. around the founding of this temple. Another thing that's happening around the founding of this temple is the Japanese Japanese invasion of Manchuria, um, and in particular the Japanese attack on Harbin. This begins, as you put it in the book, the two decades or nearly two decades of war for Tenchu, and we're going to see the reverberations of a Japanese occupation of China, various um, areas of China throughout the book, and we'll focus on that again um, in more detail in a few minutes. Um, But one of the things that's happening with regard to this particular temple is that, among other things, the government actually places a spy, a Japanese spy in the temple to check in on Tenchu's political activities. And this sort of, the way we understand Tenchu in relationship to politics, political activities with regard to Japan and beyond is going to be a theme that's going to come up again and again for the remainder of the book and and in your um, epilogue as well, or or rather in the last part um, of the book. Mm -hmm. 
And so I just want to mark this as perhaps one of the clearest places where we begin to see what winds up becoming a recurring theme really take center stage in the story, and we'll return to that shortly. Okay. Okay, uh, so as we move throughout the story, Tanshu keeps traveling. He travels to Xi'an. Um, he, uh, along the way, he is met with conditions of profound famine in central Shanxi province. Um, he has an ambition in Xi'an to revive a major temple, the Maternal Grace Temple. It's a, it's a very expensive project. It's a very historically significant project. In the midst of this, his old master, Di Xian, dies, and he travels back for the memorial. There are pirates, so I just want mm. to mark this for listeners um, who are particularly interested in pirates, and I know you are out there, listeners, because um, I am as well. There are pirates. Murdered by pirates is good. Exactly. Pirates of Chapter 7. Um, but sort of more to the point, he visits Dishan's uh, shrine, right? He goes there. But he's largely silent in his memoir about the emotional impact on him. And I wanted to take a moment to mark this and to ask you to talk a little bit about it because the, sort of dealing as a historian with these silences, this is something that comes up again and again as something that um, you as an author and a historian seem concerned with throughout the book, and it's something that's very affecting at this part of the book. So can you speak to that, the, the silences in the story and how you encounter them and navigate your way through them as a historian of Tanshu and beyond? Yeah, the, um, you know, with, with, with apologies to Doctor Who, the silence is, uh, is central, <laughs> right? I mean, the silence is just really... Uh, what, what shapes really his experience. Um, you know, I can think of, I, I, I shouldn't enumerate them because I'm sure I'll, I'll have to revise the number, but there, there are several instances where the silence is, is deafening to use a kind of a cliche. So, you know, it begins when he, it begins with his literal silence at his death or his, at his death experience when he isn't, he writes extensively about it, but he was literally silent, right? When he was, he was not alive. Um, but then he goes on to these other periods when um, he's very silent about um, the, his experience of leaving his family is one that he's, that he explains a lot of what he was thinking, but, but not, but not nearly enough to fully to fully understand what's going on. Um, he's quite silent about his relationship to um, to the Japanese um, and how he relates to the Japanese and how he how he functions. Uh, and that's both in Harbin and then later in Qingdao. And then at this moment with um, with Di Xian, um, he's, he's silent about how this affects him. Um, I, I try to approach this with uh, in a few different ways. So one. Um, one is, as I mentioned earlier, trying to respect the reader and give the reader some tools for, for making sense of what had happened. So, so clearly, I, I say clearly, I'm imposing some of my own, my own judgment into this. Clearly, this is really emotionally affecting for him. Um, so when he, when he's making these major transitions in his life, they're, I mean, they're, they're affecting him extensively, but he's not sharing with us fully how they would have affected him. He, he does give some insights into it. He, he says a little bit, but not a great deal. And we can also go back to the, to the source to try and understand why that might be the case, right? He's dictating this, this memoir for, for novice monks or for, or for people in training to, to become monks. Um, and so his, you know, his focus is on the, is on the goal is on the process is on, um, their, their ultimate, um, 
participation in in the sangha. But it's not about um, the, you know their master's emotional uh, state. So it makes it makes a lot of sense that he would be silent about it. And yet, as a twenty first century author, or even more as a twenty first century reader. Um, that's, I think, one of the most valuable things about the book is trying to get some insight into why he, you know, to why he behaved the, the way that he did. So um, that chapter, the, the Xi'an chapter, you know, that's really in many ways the, a, a social history chapter. It talks about famine and it talks about, um, well, it talks about pirates, uh, but it talks about the, the, the lawlessness and the, the different competing political organizations in in uh, central China at the time. But I, but I do think that the, that in the big picture, the most affecting, maybe not the big picture in the little picture, the most affecting part is his return to Ningbo after he's, you know, he's missed the, he's missed the services because he was delayed by, by pirates. Um, and he, you know, he sits alone with his, with his thoughts, uh, about Dishen. Uh, and then he, you know, and then you turn the page and he's moved on to doing something else. Um, so I, I can't rely on his word, but that's okay because his word would be just that. I mean, that would be one piece of evidence, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the the full the full understanding of what that moment meant. So then the the last piece that I always tried to bring in is going back to, uh, to when, I, when I was an undergraduate, we read read R. G. Collingwood and the idea of history, and, and Collingwood talked about this notion of the historical imagination, and and all historians do this to do this and is trying to figure out not necessarily what what did happen or what must have happened but trying to understand what what was a what was a plausible ex- explanation for the things that he did and what might have motivated him and we use that by using our own experience and the evidence that we're presented with um and so i try to use those moments those moments of silence um as an opportunity for me as a historian to I guess I guess ply my ply my trade to try and figure out why he acted the way he did and what was making him do that, some of those those things, um, but also just as an author to to play a little bit with the narrative structure and to to respect the the audience the reader enough to um, to let them make their own let their make their own decisions and not force my interpretation on people as they're, as they're reading it. That may be, that may be an, uh, an overly honest approach or maybe just a frustrating approach. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I didn't find it frustrating. So uh, I could just report Excellent. On behalf of one reader. I thought that was great. So as we move um, further into the story and also into more of the silences, you bring us into um, a chapter that I'm just going to kind of briefly mark and account for without asking you to talk too much about it, um, just so that we can get to Jap- uh, the, the Japanese engagement in Chapter 9. But Chapter 8 takes us into one of the most fascinating spaces and places for people who are interested in 20th century China and also 21st century China. This is Qingdao. Um, at this point in the story, it is a, a space of German influence. It's a vacation spot. And he builds the Tranquil Mountain Temple Memorial Stupa um, as a kind of Chinese-style building that rises up in the midst of lots of uh, European-style buildings. It's among the largest and most important temples founded as well during this period where you show us um, there's, it's not just about Tanshu's 
practices, but he's practicing Buddhism and he's helping found these temples in the midst of a revival of Buddhism in early 20th century China. And the success that he has in Qingdao helps establish him as one of the key figures in this revival. So this is a really important place for people who are interested in um, religious history, Buddhist history. Um, Focus on chapter 8, among the other chapters, but here's where we see a really important moment in the history of religious revival, and he plays a really significant part in that. We move from there into another really fascinating historiographical space, and that is the space of wartime. So Japanese forces invade in the summer of 1937, and you describe this as launching what you call the most controversial and also hardest to decipher period of Tanshu's career. You talk here, and this is why I mention it in the context of silences, about the challenges of making sense of the silence in the memoir in regard to Tanshu's relationship with the occupier. And this becomes really interesting because one of the things that the book is doing at this point is helping us think a little bit more critically about how we articulate relationships with occupying forces in terms of the language that we use and the way we think about those relationships. You urge us to think perhaps beyond um, the metaphor of or the language of collaboration in terms of what Tanshu was doing. So this is a really fascinating, I think, moment for anybody interested in um, wartime China um, in this particular period in 20th century Chinese history, but also in the way that we narrativize and also read narratives of um, engagement with occupying forces in wartime. So can you talk a little bit about that, um, the sort of the, the language of collaboration or not, and the challenges of making sense of the silences of Tanshu's own account with regard to understanding his relationship with the Japanese occupiers in this period. Yeah, you, um, you, you may have to rein me in to get me to talk just a little bit about it. Um, but so talk as much as you'd like. There's a, there's a few, uh, you know, yes, this, this chapter is really central, um, you know, from, as, from a scholar's point of view and for a student's point of view. Um, going back to what I said earlier, I think that Tanshu's life is valuable um, in as much as any life is valuable for its own sake. But it's also really useful because of the way he interacts with these big historical moments. And, and maybe the biggest um, is the, the, you know, the Second Sino-Japanese War. So he's operating this major temple um, in this large um, port city at Qingdao. Um, and we have to – during the Japanese occupation. So, so how do we make sense of that? And as you, as you mentioned – these categories of collaboration and resistance are are the dominant ones for for understanding this, and if you look at any situation, whether it's you know whether it's France in the Second World War, whether it's the Netherlands in the Second World War, whether it's it's um, China, some people are taking up arms and fighting against the enemy, um, and some people are are actively working with the enemy to um, to well to accomplish. To accomplish their ends, um, and but most people are doing neither of those things, um, or or maybe most people are doing both these things. I, I mention in the book, I think I've mentioned in a lot of conversations. You know, there's a a, a really thoughtful notion by by the 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 Czech the dissident and president Václav Havel, who wrote who talked about the line between collaboration and resistance not passing between individuals, but but through them. So the idea being that that you can't divide people into collaborators and resistors. Anybody who's living in in the situation is, to some extent or another, 
participating in the system, resisting the system, and, and making their own their own negotiation. So that the first thing I want to do is to try and just give some give some flesh to an individual who was who was living during this time period and making choices, some of which were probably morally questionable, and some of which were probably heroic, but but nonetheless living living his life. Um, but then, of course, as as you mentioned earlier, the silence um, you know crops up again. He he says very little about about it, um, and. It's curious that he does, um, because this is an opportunity to to shape his narrative. I mean, he may not have been expecting um, some historian to pick it up a half a century later and and try to make a book out of it. But uh, he was trying to to present his story to people who were coming after him. So why didn't he? present himself in a particularly heroic way or why didn't he make this into a teachable moment like he had done uh he had done regrettable things and here's why or here's how he would have done them differently he didn't he didn't do any of those um and in fact he goes out of his way more in harbin than in Qingdao, but he goes out of his way to to say the japanese said i was i was leading the resistance but that's not true i wasn't leading the resistance um and these other people you know, have, have accused me of being a collaborator. And so that's not, that's not true either. Um, so he, he dodges the question altogether. So I think that this is, this can easily be, be called a cop out, but I really think that the only honest way to do it is to, to present his life and to say, these are some of the things that people did in this situation that, that put tremendous stress on individual choices. Um, and to, to say that it was a simple matter of collaboration or resistance, you know, kind of misses the point, um, that most people are, are simply trying to, to make their way. And we all do that with constraints. Most of the time, those constraints are not nearly as severe as occupation by an invading army, but, uh, in this case they are, and here's, and here's what he did with it. Thank you, Jay. Now, as we move um, into the last parts of the book, a lot of other things happen for Tanchu. Um, American Marines come into the story after the Japanese defeat at the end of World War II. He does more traveling um, in, in the course of one trip. He and his colleagues are actually entertained by Guanian, um, as he claims. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting sure. part of the story. Um, and as communist victory becomes more likely, he becomes even more committed to collecting and preserving Buddhist texts. And this ultimately, by the end of the story, is going to resolve into him overseeing the creation of a Buddhist library. But before we get there, we have to meet um, and sort of get to know a little bit the student who helps make that possible. And this is the student who you actually introduce us to at the very beginning of the book, at the very opening of the story. You've talked a little bit about him already. And he also, um, he's somebody who, though, we, we kind of meet and get to know in a little bit more depth toward the end of this story. That's a young student at this point in Qingdao named Lok To who facilitates not only this wonderful um, math by which 27 monks make it to Shanghai on three tickets, um, right. which is <laughs> this fabulous scene, um, which we can talk about maybe if we have time. Um, but he also facilitates the first plane trip that Tan Chu ever makes. He facilitates Tan Chu's movement to Hong Kong, and he facilitates by the end of his life really the creation of this library that Tang Shu um, Tanshu actually, it's in, in some ways kind of a legacy for him. Yeah. And you, you bring this out at the end. So can you talk about uh, Lok To for us and sort of take us into his role in this last part of the story? 
Yeah. Lockto, you know, since I got to know him, um, you know, in, I, I have many, I have many very fond memories of Lockto and, and also some, some very fraught, fraught memories. I mean, he was, uh, he had a, a stroke not too long after I got to know him, not a serious one, but, um, it, it made it more difficult to, to interview him and actually just didn't really want to because it was very stressful for him. Um, but when I first, for the first couple of years that I was working on the project, I met with Lockto fairly regularly, um, both to interview and ask him questions about, uh, about the memoir and about his own memories of, of, uh, of Tanshu and, and also about these temples. Um, but Lockto is also instrumental more broadly for getting his perspective on, on Buddhism and how that fit into uh, his, his uh, vision of modern China. Um, and then because and this is kind of another conversation, but because Lockto or because where the Chinese government became interested uh, in the 1990s, especially, and then and later in reviving some of these temples. Um, Lokto is one of the few people who was able to, um, who could mobilize connections around the world really to help legitimize this project. And so he, you know, he was not only still important to the, to the, the community in the United States and in Canada, um, but he was vitally important to communities in Hong Kong, and then he became important to communities back in Qingdao. So he was he was a, a really a, an essential guide in, into transforming this, the project from from simply an academic one into being a more academic and, and personal one. But then, in, in understanding Lakto's life, you know, it, it, it in and of itself was a was quite a journey, um, and the, the, the anecdotes you're describing really have a sense of, of life to them and give you a, a strong, when you connect them with the man that I met, you can, you can see, I mean, he was very, he was very quick to laugh. He was very, um, engaged with the world. Um, he was not at all sort of the, 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 the image of kind of a, of a hermited, isolated monk that some people might have for a Buddhist monk. He was, he was very much active and engaged, uh, engaged with the world and, and obviously very capable when it came to, uh, getting things done. Great. Thank you, Jay. And I have to just take a moment to explain this 27 monks using three tickets thing because I've there's just wonderful scene um, at the end of chapter nine, just for listeners um, who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. I hope you'll, um, you'll move to this part of the chapter where he's trying to get Tanshu and other monks to Hong Kong. And as part of this, like he has, they can only afford three tickets to get to Shang for passage to Shanghai from which um, they will uh, try to then get to Hong Kong. So they only have three tickets, but like 27 monks want to go. And so they do this thing where, um, you know, they, the three monks go on and then two monks go like below deck, but give the remaining one monk, like the two, their two tickets. And then he like smuggles two other monks on board and then they go below deck and eventually all 27 make it onto the ship. And it's this kind of wonderful, hilarious, but also really moving moment of the story um, that I just really, really loved. Uh, it's one of many moving moments, but I just... Well, something to, you know, something that's lost in our in our modern world, I think with the ticket scanners and security checks, I don't think that sort of thing is, uh, is so likely anymore. <laughs> so, okay. So by the end of the story... Um, again, as, as I've mentioned, Tangshu, where Tanshu gets to Hong Kong. At this point, Hong Kong is in flux. Um, and Tanshu kind of follows the changing uh, sort of texture and the changing history of Hong Kong with his own um, you know, 
changing texture, right? So he presides over a new Buddhist seminary, the South China Buddhist Studies Center, and at this point, he's the most senior monk in Hong Kong. And you take us through what kind of happens as he's trying to raise money for this center. They try to make socks to make mm-hmm. money, no dice there. They try to um, sort of make money by doing laundry, no dice there. Eventually, they're able to support themselves uh, by performing a rite for deliverance of creatures of water and land, a really important Buddhist ritual, which is a, a really important moment in the history of the finances of a temple. And so it's a really interesting window into um, how you know Buddhist monks are supporting these institutions um, in the 20th century. And we've talked a little bit about already the creation of the Buddhist Library of South China. Um, and from here, Lokto makes his way to San Francisco and then to New York, the Bronx, where I'm from, actually. Really? Um, so we begin at the Bronx and we end um, in the Bronx as well. Now, in the epilogue, Jay, you tell the story, you, you sort of bring this story into not just the future, but also into um, your future or the, the kind of um, epilogue of your experience telling the story as a historian. And you tell the story of a publicity poster that you shared with your contacts at the Young Men's Buddhist Association. And also talk a little bit about the the fallout from that poster. Um, I think this is perhaps something that's worth talking a little bit about because this brings out the kind of issue that uh, we talked about briefly earlier in our conversation, yeah. and that's the way to understand Tenshu in with regard to political history. So well, can I th- you talk about that? Yeah. Sure. No, I mean, at, at the at the very outset, um, oftentimes the way I frame this book is, is it's about traveling between and among worlds. Um, you know, and that includes the, the world of the living and the world of the dead, and it includes physical space, you know, from, from Dongbei and, and from the Northeast down to Central China and to the Southeast and then on to Hong Kong. But but also as an author, um, it left me between different worlds. So one would include the notion of scholarship versus advocacy. Um, so when I'm working with a lot of these people um, who are believers and they're giving me access to this material, to what it, how does that shape or restrict my, my actions vis-a-vis those materials? Um, also, the notion of objectivity is, is raised there too. If they're, you know, as I just told you, if, if one of my main sources is somebody who I who I know, um, you know, how does that affect affect the story? It's not unique to this situation, but it, but it's relevant. So then, what happened? Um, what you were just asking me about? So so right, I had I had I was giving a talk on this. Um, at I think it was at, at Bryn Mawr College, and uh, the 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 idea was. You know, I was talking about the intersection of Buddhism and politics, religion and politics, and, and Buddhism and nationalism. I can't remember the exact formulation right now. But definitely religion and politics came up. And I was very excited about it because I did a nice job on the poster, and, and it's, always, it's always fun to share your work um, with, with others. And I went, as a means of thanking them for their help, I, I sent this poster on and, and, and got back a message that, that wasn't um, – it, it wasn't scolding, but it was it was cool um, compared to my earlier interactions, and just that they wanted to be clear that you know Tanshu wasn't you know wasn't political. Um, there was nothing political going on, and and I had a, had a schedule to go and, and meet with them, and they had kind of said that wasn't going to work out. We could reschedule sometime, but but I, eventually I did meet back up with them again. But it took several several years, and I think that that was instructive to me. 
um, as a historian, because it's like, well, now I understand why people work with sources that are in the deep past. They, uh, they don't, they don't interact with you. Um, but also I think it was, it was helpful again for me understanding that, you know, the, the story doesn't, the story doesn't end. Um, and in the same way that Tan Shu was dealing with difficult ethical, moral and political decisions, from the 1890s all the way into the, the 1960s when he died. Um, but the, the ramifications continue. And even today, um, for instance, that, that um, temple in Qingdao, um, there's, there's a fair amount of controversy over it because it's been nicely renovated. And I, I stayed there for a couple of weeks uh, when I was doing the research. It's been nicely renovated and is, is sort of seen as a, as a, a jewel in the, in the, 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 uh, the tourist crown of the region. But a lot of monks, uh, especially in Hong Kong and the U.S., are, are somewhat dismissive of, of, of it and other Buddhist sites in the mainland, saying they're, they're really being exploited, they're being used as, as uh, money-making enterprises, and they're not honoring the, the spiritual and religious spirit in which they were uh, intended. Now, of course, I can then add another layer onto that by saying, well, well, even the religious and, and uh, spiritual context, when they were constructed, was problematic, right? Because they had a political role at that time as well. So I think it, I think it helps to break down some of those, uh, those bright lines that we have between categories, but also just to, to reemphasize the, the contingent and, and constantly changing nature of, of the way that people interact with one another, i.e. politics. <laughs> Well, Jay, thank you so much um, for making the time to talk with me about the book. I usually end with two questions, but I'm going to add a third one onto the end here because it seems particularly appropriate given the nature of the book and the really beautiful and very evocative way that it's written. So the the writing style of the book is very fluid. Um, it's very, it, it's the kind of style that makes this history come alive for a reader in a way that many histories of 20th century China don't. And I can envision it being used in lots of different kinds of contexts, including in the classroom. So what is your vision for how the book, um, how you'd like to see the book used? And what do you envision the kind of audience being for the book? And can you, um, in what ways do you imagine it being used in a classroom setting? Sure. Well, um, well, thanks for that compliment, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that it's. I hope that the book is is readable, and I think that um, I do think because of what I said earlier um, that I, I see this as a a way of sort of getting at aspects of society in modern China. Or rather, getting getting at aspects of the big arc, um, but how that big arc is reflected and refracted through the life of an individual. Um, you know, I think that the book would would go well, and you know, in teaching about twentieth century China, if you've got if you've got big books that talk about the big trends, and then you have smaller books to complement it. Um, when we talk about small films, I think if this is a small book, um, and this would you know, there's other you know much better examples of, of people who've, who've done this, but people like, um, like Henrietta Harrison's man awakened from dreams, um, or going back further, Jonathan Spence's death of woman Wong, but, but books that are, that far surpass my ambitions for this one, but books that look at the lives of individuals and how they fit into, um, specific context and really make sense of, okay, the, the Ming Qing conquest is this, but here's how it played out in the life of an individual or the transition to, um, 
from people from republic to people's republic or the Japanese invasion or any of the other different events, how they, they play out. So I think it's useful in that sense. I also hope that if some of what I've played around with, with genre and biography and microhistory, those things, um, lots of authors are doing that. I'm, I'm far from unique in that, but it would be interesting to see the book paired um, with some of those others. In fact, I've done some of that uh, in, in my own classes, looking at, at Robert Bicker's work and also with with some novels and, and mentioned Henrietta Harrison, some different different ways of getting at lives, kind of Chinese lives, to, to, to borrow that title, um, uh, and how that how we have examples of not just what it might have been like for people to live through these big events, but actually what it was like for them to live through these big events. So Jay, we've talked a lot about a lot of aspects of the book, but of course there were a ton of things in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I think I actually really think we hit on, on just about all of them. I, I think that so much of so much of the book is trying to to fill in gaps and fill in you know fill in holes um, that that the main source is, is silent on. So I, I really I would I would urge the reader to you know I to, to take this as, as a book that is about really the spaces as well as as well as the form. And I think I think you did a great job guiding through that. Although we could, of course, go through each and every example, but I I, uh, I think they got the picture. So now that the book is out and the paperback also just came out, so congratulations on both of those. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Um, well, I'm really excited by the work that um, that I'm that I'm getting to do now. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've come to sort of own own my identity as as sort of a historian of of China and the West or China uh, China's interactions with with other with the other um, at a personal level. And so, the what I've kind of settled on now is I'm, I'm working on a project that's set at the racetrack in Shanghai um, in the in the 1940s. So actually, and to be specific, on, in November of 1941. So the idea is that I'm going to take one day, um, and it's the day that was the last champions race run at the racetrack before the Japanese invaded, well, not before they invaded China, of course, but before they invaded the international settlement, um, which doesn't happen until, you know, what Americans think of as Pearl Harbor, right, when they attack Hong Kong and, and other... Um, Western Outpost. So this one day, I'm going to start, I'm starting in the morning, going through to the evening. Um, and it just so happens that this day was Sun Yat-sen's birthday. So there's stuff going on associated with that. Uh, Liza Hardoon, who was uh, the, the widow of Silas Hardoon, one of the wealthiest men in, uh, in all of China. Her funeral was that same day uh, and documenting sort of how how the, the life of the city went on or didn't go on at this kind of liminal moment there when the war had started but yet hadn't com- fully enveloped um, the international settlement and then really the last lights of this, this colonial society and trying to evaluate what that meant um, and what it was like just as it was about to, to change, period. Oh, my God, I love it. Okay, um, email me when that's out, and we'll talk All about right. that, too. What a great, great project. So, Jay, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. It was a pleasure to read the book, and it's also really a special pleasure for me whenever I have a chance to talk to a historian who's clearly also very um, self-reflexive and self-aware as a writer. Um, so thank you for all of these things. Best of luck, and have fun at the racetrack. Well, thank you so much, and thanks uh, for the opportunity. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.